Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming with you with episode six from downtown Memphis, setting a high slap dab on the Mississippi River, downtown Memphis. Titled Last of the Litter, Jesse, my two boys, and me, duck hunting. So this will be a little different episode. My previous five have been on the old times, starting in the 17th and 18th century. This will be, as I've stated on previous episodes, I'll ever so often put in a little family personal hunting outfit on that I've done through my lifetime, and this happens to be one of them. So sit back and relax as I give you episode six, The Last of the Litter. shots nine drakes on the water killed by my two boys brian and chad and retrieved by jesse in fine fashion so on with episode six the last of the litter they were my precious two little boys living in a large city in the suburbs they wanted a dog unquestionably they did there was never a circumstance where a boy didn't want a dog but father didn't want a dog and the more father didn't want a dog the more the boys wanted a dog After months of asking and being refused by father, they laid siege to their mother. They pleaded their case to such effect that she took up their cause. Then the day came when she pleaded their case to me. I protested feverishly, but by the looks on her face and after the little woman makes up her mind, after 16 years of marriage, I knew I had to bring out the white flag of surrender because my testosterone is no match for her estrogen. Besides, when I finish this story, there will be no doubt that we love her better for it to this day. And as she said, you are the one that told me that your good friend and duck hunting buddy, Alfred Female's Black Lab, had just had a litter of Labrador puppies in February. It will be a good present for Brian's 10th birthday in a few days. I hadn't told the little woman that I had refused an offer back in April from Alfred when I paid him a visit that Alfred offered to let me have the pick of the litter, nor that I had asked Alfred not to tell her or the boys that I had refused his offer and cited my desire for the offer and my refusal of the offer to remain a secret, which Alfred lukewarmly agreed to do. As she continued to press the boys' calls, it made it quite plain and clear that I was to take Chad and Brian to Alfred Burton's, my friend who lived in Michigan City, Mississippi, which had just crossed the line uh, from Tennessee and about eight miles south of Grand Junction, Tennessee. So she made it plain that I was to go there to just to play a visit and visit and to let Brian and Chad see the puppies with the alibi that we were going there to shoot some clay pigeons as Chad was too young, only six at the time. In this case, Two days before Brian's 10th birthday, and without the boys being present, I pleaded for a chance to appeal my acquiescence, but the judge in this case, my wife, turned it down. So the two boys and I piled in the Bronco and drove eastward to the country 50 miles away. On the way, I called him and told him we were on our way and would like to shoot some clay pigeons. 
Once there, Alfred greeted us and we shot clay pigeons while he had to do some work in his wood shop where he was making a chopping block for a friend. Before he left, I asked if the boys could see the puppies. At the kennel, there were four remaining puppies, two black ones and two yellow ones, left out of eight, left out of eight puppies. One of the yellow ones immediately took up with the boys, following them everywhere they went. It was obvious from the interaction of my boys that she was the one, and it was quite obvious to me, for when each picked her up, she stared with big, brown, mysterious eyes that penetrated deep into their soul and seemed to ask, will you rub my fur and say pretty words, then put me down and never pick me up again and walk away like the others have done? Her eyes conveyed confusion, hurt feelings, and forgiveness, but most of all, they conveyed love, and as each looked at her sad face, her eyes pleaded, please take me home. I remember years ago when another set of big, beautiful brown eyes conveyed love, thus capturing my heart and soul. When she opened the door at a party in the small college town of Lawrence, where she was doing postgraduate work at the University of Kansas, I knew immediately Rosanna was the one I would marry. She, in this case, is the little woman who had taken up the calls for her two boys. I corralled Alfred to say goodbye, and I didn't have a chance to tell him what I was up to as the boys were constantly at my side. We drove back to Memphis, and after pondering if I had a chance to appeal my wife's decision, I decided that I stood no chance of doing so. Therefore, I called Alfred to tell him the boys wanted the yellow one. He asked immediately and with an intensified voice, which yellow one? I said quickly, the big one, and I will pick her up tomorrow. Then with words that still ring in my ear to this day, Alfred said, good, because she is the last of the litter. I was momentarily stunned before I could ask in shock, what do you mean she is the last of the litter? His answer still reverberates in my ears to this very day as he said, the other three have already been selected and are waiting on their owners to pick them up. I barked, so she has been culled seven times with the others having been, been gobbled up. Last of the litter kept ringing in my ears. I was in trouble, deep trouble, and I knew no way out of it. Why haven't you told me that before? I said with a heightened tone. Well, how could I know as you didn't tell me when you and the boys were up here? Otherwise, I would have told you then, but I guess you couldn't have told me then in front of the boys. I thought about calling you as I got a suspicion that you were up to something, but I thought it best afterwards to just leave it alone. I hoped you wasn't up here as I suspected you might have been. Well, finally, I cooled down as he was right. It was my fault he didn't know. So I asked him, is the puppy a full-blood Labrador? Why, of course she is. If you prick her nose and her tail, she will bleed at both ends, he said with all truthfulness. We almost came to blows and my coolness went to a boil again. Just simmer down, I kept saying to myself. When pressed for her lineage, he offered... The puppy's mother, which you all saw, is not registered, and her father is a registered big yellow lab, and she is shaped like her father. Her father's breeder is a well-known and respected breeder and trainer of field trial labs. What's his name, I asked. Robert Milner. He lives just a few miles from here up at Grand Junction, Alfred responded. What's the puppy's name, I asked after simmering down some. Ain't named her yet. She has no fashionable name like Shadow of Retrieverville, number 6344. Well, that did it, so I drove to Alfred's and bore her home in bewilderment while I moaned, groaned, and kept saying to myself, last of the litter, what did I get myself into? For the night, she was housed in our backyard shed where I kept her until the next day when it would be Brian's birthday. We went to church that morning, but my thoughts ran more on the pup than on spiritual matters. 
After lunch, Brian opened his presents, and then we told him he had one more. With him, Chad, and the little woman being in a room, room where they could not see the shed, I went in and brought her out. The amazement on the boys' faces were priceless, and I forgot for a little while that she was the last of the litter. After they had settled down from excitement, I asked, What are you going to name her to Brian? He said, Jesse. I said in bewilderment, once again another word I just used, Jesse, how did you come up with that name? And he said, I don't know. During the next few months, I tossed objects for her to retrieve, and she might and she might not, depending on her mood. She was a shy dog, so with any harsh words, she would cower and refuse to do anything. I asked, what have I gotten myself into? This I asked silently, or to anyone who would listen, which was certainly no one in my immediate family. Then it would echo in my head, she is the last of the litter. Training, and that word training is underlined, bold type, underlined, bold type, italics, everything. Anyway, training went on like this for months with some progress made more so in, in obedience than in retrieving. On occasion, a glimpse of brilliance shone through, but I had my doubts and wondered if she would ever be ready for primetime duck hunting and that she would never be a full-trial dog, at least in my mind. When not in training, she gnawed on everything. The drywall in the garage was no match for her canine teeth. She dug numerous holes in the backyard like she was trying to reach China, and maybe she was. It looked like World War II B-17 Flying Fortress bombers had dropped a load of bombs in our backyard. We had no chance to win Yard of the Month. Once I went to the backyard and could not find her, I searched to only find a new hole she had dug between our yard and the neighbor's yard. I peeped over the top of the six-foot fence and saw the neighbor's our setter. Of all things, guess what? Doing this thing with my daughter. I immediately climbed over the fence and grabbed the our setter by its moving haunches and threw him backwards. Then I grabbed Jessie and tossed her over the fence into our yard. After climbing over the fence again, I had a father-to-daughter talk with her and a serious talk with the little lady, and fortunately we both agreed she needed to be spaded, so off to the vets we went, just us two and Jessie. My training of Jessie went on, and she might and she might not retrieve. With duck hunting season approaching, I didn't know what might happen when I took her hunting. Nevertheless, at 10 months of age, Jessie had her first duck hunt in some flooded green timber near Wynn, Arkansas. On reaching the timber, timber hole just at dawn, she began growling and barking at the decoys while repeatedly advancing slowly towards him before sheepishly retreating. She failed to scare them and tried again and again to do so, always retreating in a state of amazement. A light wind came up and moved the decoys. She retreated once again, not sure of what to make of the situation. Finally, with a yelp and her tails between her legs, she slinked away, glancing shyly back over her shoulder at the decoys before retiring at where I was stationed underneath the tree. There is, and it still is, as I think back on it, something uncanny in the situation. What looks like a retriever is not a retriever. She is the last of the litter, I kept saying to myself, the last of the litter. My two hunting buddies looked on in amazement and frustration as I took her out time and again to view the decoys, and eventually, over the next month of hunting season, she came to know them to be decoys as well as I did. However, not a retrieve was made that morning. The only positive of the inaugural hunt was that the other waterfowlers uttered no words of wisdom nor made any mention of the lack of her skills or the lack thereof, nor did they demean her anyway. That was nice. Back home, we trained some more when she was in a training mood, but nothing changed. She might retrieve or she might not. 
The following summer, I decided to take her for professional training about 70 miles east of Memphis. I told the trainer she was a shy dog and no harsh words could be spoken or she would cower. I also told him of her propensity to retrieve or not to retrieve. Oh, just leave her with me for a week, he said, and if she won't do anything after that, you can come and get her and I won't charge you a dime. However, I have never met a dog I couldn't train. Just the words I wanted to hear. One week later, the phone rang. Come and get her. I can't even give her to jump off the bank for a retrieve. The dejected, maybe it should should be elated, voice said on the other end of the phone. What'd you pay for her? Nothing, I said. Well, you got your money's worth. She's worth about what you paid for, he said. Not very nice words coming into my ears. I felt my blood boiling and had a few choice words for the trainer. And I'll keep those to myself but managed to hang up without a cuss word said. Uh-huh. But my feelings were hurt. I know that's right. We trained almost daily, and she showed some improvement in retrieving. I wondered if season two would be like season one, with her not showing much promise. But I soon found out when Brian and I went hunting on opening morning, for the first time she showed some ability. While hunting a large swamp, we shot several, and she found all but one, a wounded one, which Brian had shot with his first shot. She winded and chased that old bird for some time. Just when I was ready to use my whistle to call her off, I heard splashing behind us among the brush. In a few seconds, out swam Jessie, holding proudly in her mouth the wounded greenhead. She went to Brian, strutting haughtily, mightily, and he took it from her mouth. Look a look on each of their faces said it all. What a beautiful scene that was. It was Brian's first duck and Jessie's first retrieve, and the look on my face said it all. Every father remembers their son's first duck or his retriever's first retrieve. I said to Brian, Jesse might make a good retriever after all. And I thought to myself, the little woman was right in her decision that she made to go get Jesse. Since then, Jesse learned to retrieve flawlessly without being trained in any professional way. All learned through repetition and me getting out there in the summertime working with her. She became the inspiration of many hunting romances besides being a playmate and roommate to me and the boys. She was most proficient in the hunt, going on when others quit, measuring her endurance by the sun, a bit speedier at sundown than sunup, though lags sore in four places and would have been in six had she had them. Besides being an excellent swimmer, she had a nose on her that could find a fallen duck honestly a quarter mile away. At least it seems so to me, for I have seen her with her nose in the air, scent a duck and follow it across rice paddies after rice paddies or through flooded green timber, saying as plainly as she could that the tainted air which was stirring in her nostrils was telling her and me she would be back with the duck before long. I can remember when she retrieved Chad's first duck shot on my 80 acres in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, and I can see his face as I took a picture of him with his first duck with Jesse beside him. How precious are their memories so many years later of our hunts together, me, my boys, and Jesse. Since a duck, she was never meant to be what was termed a field trial dog, which occupies so much space in the sporting journals, newspapers, and the breeding world. She would have been labeled a meat dog. Just when and where the term meat dog originated, I am unable to say. The fact that she was not a field trial dog is not thought worthy of my consideration. In fact, in describing Jessie to others, I always say, she ain't no field trial dog. She's a high-class meat dog. At this time, it may just as well be said that a meat dog can be just as well-bred, just as good to look at in action or in repose 
and just as handsome and stylish on retrieving as a frail trial dog. And that is and that is what the others thought once they had hunted with her. Jessie was always civil to other dogs and tried in the doglish way to live up to golden rule. But if a dog persisted and seemed bent on a fuss, she would accommodate him or her. Dogs would often dart out after her when we jogged in the neighborhood. Then she would trot to the opposite side of the road and give a perturbed glimpse as much as to say, I am a peaceful dog and don't want to fight. If the canine persisted, Jesse would shake him or her well and send him or her yelping back whence it came, a wiser if not a better dog. Then Jessie would trot on with me as if nothing had happened. She in this way gave many a mongrel and full-blooded rescued dog a lasting lesson and many bigger than she. She was a vigilant watchdog but never meddled with anyone who kept his hands off our property or belongings or us. One day a neighbor came to borrow his shovel and there being no one about to get it, he entered the fenced-in backyard. Jessie laid hold of his trousers leg and held him until he pulled loose and hightailed out of the gate for safety. And woe to anyone who came meddling in the night or who came in rags in the daytime. She hated flies, and when they lit on her, she would catch nearly everyone and eat them. After her sight began to fail, I concluded shadow-like spider webs came before eyes in like manner, as I had heard old people complain of, for she would catch and appear to eat imaginary bugs. On more occasions than one, Jessie escaped from the backyard through an open gate that we had forgotten to close when leaving in our car. When that happened, she never saw a jogger or passerby go home alone. She went home with many a pretty young lady, and I often remarked that she might have been in far worse company. On two occasions, after escaping through an open gate inadvertently left open, she left, and while out wandering, she was hit by a car. On the first, at the age of five, we got a call from a jogger. Jessie had been hit and her left forearm appeared broken. Not more than a mile away, I arrived to find her curled up, not moving and not whimpering. Being a doctor, it took me no time to realize her forearm was broken as it frailed in the air when lifted. She nudged my hand to let me know it hurt, but not a whimper came forward. I told the little woman and the boys that I would take her out to the country and end her misery. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. No way was that going to happen. Three months later, after surgery, with a rod and plate attached to her bones, she was good as new and ready for the coming season. I had no idea vets could do this kind of operation. The escapade happened when she was nine years old. Once again, she had gotten out an open gate where she followed a walker. The phone call came, and this time it was a broken pelvis. Once again, I repeated, stupidly, I will take her out in the country and end her misery. The same quick response came from my wife, who sent us back to the vet's office, all of us, and there was no doubt in my mind that I had better respond and quickly. This time, surgery was not required, only rest for six weeks. Perplexed, I asked the vet, how do I keep an active dog at rest for six weeks? He mumbled something which I will not repeat. With the same results as last time, she was ready to go the next hunting season, and none the worse, only a noticeable limp. How well do I remember her last hunt at age 12? Suffering from rheumatism that caused her to move about slowly, I intended to leave her at home on opening morning of her 12th season. I would have, but that would have hurt her worse than taking her along. As I walked out the door with my hunting togs on, she danced and pranced that morning just as well or better than when she was a youngster, letting me know she was ready and that I had better not leave her behind, rheumatism or no rheumatism. And be, whoa, be unto me if I ever left her behind, 
because upon my return she would sniff my bronco wheels to see whether the smell gave any indication I had hunted, and she could always tell just from the smell of the mud or dirt. If she determined that I had hunted, then she would mope around for hours and give a look of, how could you do that to me? A slow hunt we hunted all day in the sunk lands on the St. Francis Lake near Mocktree, Arkansas, which is a widening of the St. Francis River. Hunting in a huge wooden blinding blind, just Jesse and me, I put a few birds on the water, which Jesse retrieved. Rheumatism or no rheumatism, she jumped from her stand attached to the blind and complained nothing of the fractured bones nor of the years of rheumatism which had, had handicapped her powers since the bones had been broken, but instead put her last flickering spark of energy into the best way to show me a little of the sports that she loved as well as I. Yes, she had great as I had and slowed down like I had, and she couldn't hear the whistling of wings like she once could, nor move as fast as she used to, and the wake in the water wasn't what it used to be when she made her retrieves. But age had not lessened her burning desire to retrieve and please her master, especially if now my two older boys, Brian and Chad, were along. With dusk drawing near, I steered the boat to the dock. Once there, I noticed her abdomen looked like looked distended. Walking back to the clubhouse some 100 yards, she swelled until there was no doubt that she was distended and was in pain. I had seen this look of pain before the previous two times when she had broken bones. A few minutes more and still in pain, I loaded her up and departed for home, some 75 miles away. When I arrived, she could not lift her head nor get up and was near death, taking a breath every few seconds or so. It was a sad scene. She was the size of a hard air balloon. She looked pitiful. I lifted her from the back of the barco, placed her on her cushion and blanket in the garage, went inside and grabbed the boys and wife. Their eyes moistened and tears fell. We knelt and the boys lifted her head and rubbed her fur. Her eyes pleaded, I am in pain, help me. They cried, we love you, don't die, we love you. It was heartbreaking with her beautiful brown eyes fixed on us so fondly and appealingly asking for help. Silence and sorrow descended on the household. I stupidly thought to myself with them gathered around, Jesse, that I would take her outside the city limits and relieve her of her pain and suffering, which was obvious by the expression on her face. But the little woman, in no uncertain words, let me know once again, just by looking at me and not saying anything, that wouldn't be acceptable, and that we were going to the vet immediately. Then those big, beautiful brown eyes came from that yellow lab, which I can see now. She said, help me, help me, I am hurting. It was then the boys begged so earnestly for a vet's help that we left to make a trip to the dog emergency room as our vet's office was closed since it was Sunday night. Maybe it wasn't the end. Maybe something could be done, I thought to myself. I found myself in full compliance with the others. We would do whatever the vet said. Once at the emergency room, within an hour, the vet gave us the diagnosis, the dreaded gastric bloat, or more technically, a condition that vets call gastric dilatation volvulus, a life-threatening condition of large-breed dogs, a condition where the bowels get twisted up so nothing can pass through and gas builds up. Being the medical doctor, I knew the prognosis wasn't good. He started treatment with IV fluids, antibiotics, and antiarrhythmics. Next, he attempted to decompose the stomach by passing a tube. It wasn't successful. That left the vet no other choice. She has no chance of survival if the problem is not corrected by surgery, the vet said. 
On the other hand, if we operate to correct the problem, she probably will die because of her age, but there is always a chance she might live. We were saddened and made a decision and departed. The next day after surgery in the afternoon, I got the call that no one wants to receive. Jesse is dead, the vet said. We raced to the vet's office. Jesse was asleep with her head on her paws in the dear old familiar attitude, asleep with a soundness that never would awaken. Jesse had departed from this life. Open gates would trouble her no more, and joggers and walkers would have no companion again. She would no longer be fenced in or dig another foxhole in the backyard, nor retrieve another duck. No more would she go with my boys than me on hunting trips, nor snuggle up to the boys at nighttime. While we stood around her that bright afternoon, no one was ashamed of the tears that dampened our cheek, and though Jessie was a dog and only a dog, her memory is cherished by every member of the family, even to this day. She was a true friend and hunting companion, and he despises the friendship of the dog. This is one of the choicest things in life. I drove to Alfred's place in the country and looked on as Alfred dug a shallow grave underneath the shade of a huge oak tree with his backhoe. We tenderly lowered her on a green pine balls and flowers and heaped dirt over her and a round mound above her. I prayed and then I left her to her everlasting rest. Life for Jessie had come to an end, bringing everlasting sleep to her short life. No reminder of her life remains now but the little mound of fresh earth underneath the oak tree and many photographs, but most of all are memories that come into my head ever so often. It seems too bad and sad that a dog grows old so soon. I suppose most people would say this is the end of her, but is it? Is there not a dog heaven, I ponder? I only know that my wife and I and the two boys have many everlasting pleasant memories of her. No hunting season will ever be the same, for something precious has been taken from us. No more will we witness another misty sunrise over the wetlands and savor the breath of a morning breeze in our nostrils, nor hear the sound of whistling wings, nor see her retrieve another duck. O oh, Jesse is ours no more, so faithful and so true. You are gone, yet I will honor you, your dust, as will the boys. Though you sleep and need the sod, I will never forget, nor neither will the boys, wherever and whenever I and the boys hunt. The many scenes of our hunts together, like an angel in my dreams, you come to me yet. When I cross death's dark river, I will follow your footsteps across the great divide to meet you on the bright shores of heaven. Let your sweet spirit lead me as it did in my hunting days. Farewell, my dear Jessie. We left her to her eternal rest, knowing that no poet would ever sing her praise, nor whose deeds, though heroic, at least in our eyes, would ever be recorded in history. Yet she still flourishes when I look at the old photographs or read the notations made of her hunts together in my hunting journals, which I sum through every now and then. Each page in my journal tells of her successes, never mentioning her failures which were few. The old journal is a link that holds me and the boys to her past. Her death saddens our hearts, for the twelve years she spent with us were among the brightest of our lives. While on earth she acted well her part, did it willingly and lovingly, gave much to the entertainment of the family, and did all that was asked of her, all, she, all that she was meant to do. During all those years, Jessie was our constant companion. We loved her just as much out of hunting season as in. Now, memory at times plays its pranks. Nevertheless, it is overwhelming with good things that can never occur again. The world is full of Jessies, but only one is the average lot of man. The boys and I will be faithful to her memory. We cannot help it. With her passing on, the old zeal has dwindled, 
and a little rust on the gun barrel doesn't worry me so much anymore. Many summer after afternoons I lay underneath the oak tree where she is buried and listen to the voices of rustling leaves, wandering bumblebees droning in and out of hearing, and doves cooing. It is a pleasant place to do so and lulls me always to dreamy memories of her. I see her still swimming from here to there, that nose so full of delicate and tender tissues on which the faintest scent made an impression, well into the wind speeding here, hesitating there. Her nostrils open, they drink the wind. It is tainted a second and gone. She changes her course and the impression grows stronger that she is on the right course. In no time she has achieved her mission and returns ever so gracefully. The boys and I may hone on for years and years and shoot over all kinds of dogs and own some good ones. In fact, from a field point of view, some better than Jesse. But when the hourglass is mostly run out and I look back, think back, dream back of those days spent a field, preeminently above and beyond, in a, in a class of her own, will stand Jesse. Over her 11 years of hunting, she retrieved 30, I'm sorry, 24 banded ducks killed by me and two by Brian. And as my journal recorded, she retrieved a little over 2,000 ducks. It is no mock sentiment when I say that not the least pleasant sight to my eyes after I have crossed the great divide, and why shouldn't it not include four-footed friends as well, would be my trusted Jesse waiting for me. And if she is there, I feel quite sure she will be standing with her forepaw in the water's edge when it's my turn to cross. May it be that she will leap on me, whom she loved, and lick my face in eternity. We shall never have another Jesse, and I, will I fear, I never will. Her memory is still fondly entrenched into the hearts of my two boys, my wife, and our love for her endures. What of the other littermates? History telleth not, but this we know. The best ones are not always the first choices of the litter. Great dogs have developed after being the last of the litter, and so it was with Jesse. So that ends episode six. Don't miss an episode of Historic Waterfowling Stories that I come to you in every Tuesday as the old-timers give us their treasures and hidden riches of their history. And furthermore, visit my website if you haven't been there already and continue to go there because I add a, a different blog uh, topics all the time and I also uh, transcribe this uh, podcast or every podcast onto the blog. Uh, it, when you go there, you'll also see what my old books or out-of-print books I've got, and, and some are still in print. The one I recommend you get now, which is in print, is uh, it's called Historic Waterfowling Images, and you can get that off my podcast. All it is, basically 200 pages on a 100-pound glossy paper of old duck hunting photos that go back all oh, from the 1870s on up until some, mostly through 1940, but a few in 1950. Uh, and you can see some DVDs of old-time videos uh, that Phil and Stream took and that NBC took that date back to the 1920s. And the NBC one goes to 1955 of the famous Wallace Claypool Wild Acres scenes. In closing, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in, and I hope you return. And please rate and review my podcast. The next podcast will be entitled the Hudson Bay Company, Ducks, Geese, and Swanskins, Feathers, and Quills. That will be episode seven. In all of my podcasts, I will try to leave a reflection uh, that's written by me, sometimes by old timers, but this one will be by me, that hopefully by reflections, it will bring back memories within you and bring out emotions within you of the time spent with your family and your boys or, and girls, especially if they hunt and especially if they duck hunt. So here is this reflections episode. 
Of this world's possessions, I have but a small collection, but in memory's vault I have amassed great treasures of days of yesteryears, my rivers, swamps, and marshes, and gunning points, all marked with magic red letters of red-letter days spent a field and a stream, and carefully stored away, more precious by far than emeralds and fine gold. And as my days grow shorter and the days of old age comes upon me, as come they will do all things mortal, I will remove them from their hiding places one by one and live the memories over again. And then my despair will be dispelled, and again the sun will rise and shine brightly on life's pathway. Until I put the gun back in its rack for its final resting place, I will proceed bravely on with renewed hope for every hunting season, never fretting my ever-nearing destination, the end of all declining years. Nevertheless, till providence calls, I will live in misty dreams drawn on imagination's mirror. That ends episode six. So visit my website, waterfowling.net, and may God bless.